Well, wouldn't you know it, I've done it again. I, uh, I picked up and read a book. And so now you have to listen to me talk for the next little while, minus Hussein and Milo, uh, neither of whom reads, uh, mostly because Hussein only reads manga. And uh, Milo has the attention span of what you guys keep telling me I should replace him with. Um, usually it's a tropical fish, a small dog, a shop, I think someone said. Um, what else was the most re- recent one? was a, a nice plate of meat and cheeses, which actually, since we started recording at the studio, is uh, an element of Trash Future, the podcast about how the slogan is not something I say anymore on a regular basis, because I'm going to keep it as a treat for everyone. Um, yeah, not, not a regular feature anymore, the luxury food, because the studio is not my house. And my house is close to the nice, um, nice, nice shops, we'll say. And the studio is not. It's, it's, it's got a co-op nearby. So usually we might have a couple of beers, which explains why it's so coherent all the time. Anyway, let's talk. Let's talk books. Why not? Because it's Riley's Comedy Book Club. Hello and welcome. I'm the Riley from the title that I just said, um, and this is my book club. So we are, uh, this month, we've read um, Violent Borders, uh, Refugees and the Right to Move, which is out on Verso. Uh, it is by Reese Jones, who is a geographer at the University of Hawaii. I strongly recommend you pick it up. I think the ebook is, either it was for a while pretty heavily discounted. It's, it's really worth a read. Um, it's not super long. Um, it's a sort of forensic uh, and historical discussion of the growth of the border regime globally. Um, we start looking, um, well, I mean, we, we look at especially at the European Union uh, and the States with sort of uh, little delves into Australia, into even like the developing worlds, so the relationship between Bangladesh and India and you know, Myanmar uh, and Bangladesh and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, it's very good. Uh, it, what struck me about it was that like a lot of um, like more sort of academic socialist literature, it's really, really, really good at diagnosing what's going wrong. But I feel like... You never okay. Sometimes I, I I use this this um this 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 simile to talk about when to try and, and, and sort of help clarify when sort of solutions are almost so broad that they're almost useless, right? Um, because the solutions that are offered are almost like well, of course. So I'll just I'll spoil it because you know this is the this is Riley's commie spoiler cast, I guess. Um. Some of the key solutions to um, the problems caused by borders, which we will delve into over the next however long uh, I do this. Um, the solutions really are we looking at sort of opening borders globally. We're looking at sort of um, harmonizing labor markets to prevent like arbitrage between different regimes. Um, and what was the third one? Uh Sorry, Nate. Um, yeah, and then like just limits on private property. And what that sounds to me like, uh, if you were to imagine 
a global regime with high uniform worker protections and limits on, if not the abolition of private property, I mean, other than just a very big dicked version of Earth, that basically sounds like successfully globally exported communism. Um, and, you know, aside from the helpful guidebooks <laughs> written by uh, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, uh, who some of you might know as Lenin, um, other than sort of permanent revolution and permanently exporting revolution, I'm not really sure how we get there. Um, but then again, a lot of good socialist writing is critique. And I think rather than being a sort of manual for praxis, um, Violent Borders is a very, very good, uh, very, very strong critique of the global border regime. I think that's how it's sort of most useful. Uh, so basically, let's, let's um, think of the, of, the, of the chapters we're looking at. We are focusing on, first on the European Union, the world's most deadly border. Uh, it's... it's, it's um, it's the, the, the MS-13 of borders, although I recently found out that MS-13 is the world's second most uh, dangerous gang, of course, obviously. Thank you. Right-wing talking points. Um, chapter 2, the U.S.-Mexican border is looking more at militarization. Uh, chapter 3 looks at the sort of global border regime. So we're like, okay, we've looked at the European Union and the U.S.-Mexico border, the greatest defenders in the world of violent borders, but we can see it popping up sort of everywhere. Um, and then sort of the, the latter chapters, so that's the, the, the first three are kind of looking at, okay, what's the border situation now? The latter chapters are looking at kind of the sources of, 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 of borders, like, well, what, where do they come from? What's the point? And really, the, one of the key conclusions, and we'll sort of explore this more later, is that the global border regime, whether it's looking at the borders of private property within states, uh, administrative borders that sort of crop up all the time um, within states, sort of in history and now, and really how they're able to be used um, as, a, as a method of, of control. And one of the things that we get uh, out of this idea is that um, borders uh, have sort of throughout history like been put up when somebody wants to engage in extraction uh, or even slavery, you know, um, because they want this sort of exclusive right to just pull as much from somewhere as they can uh, without you know, needing to share it with anyone or being accountable to anyone. Um, and how really it is, it's a way, and also he explores this through his discussion of the environmental effects of borders, which, spoiler alert, are bad. Um, how it's, it's, and this is something that really strikes me throughout the entire book, is that it's a way for it's a way for an actor who wants to act irresponsibly to create an internal and an external world into which they can externalize the negative consequences of what they do and we see sort of over and over and over again that's been the point of borders so you know whether it's a uh, um a whether it's a, 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 a wealthy um, English aristocrat in the 16th, 17th century who's enclosing a large sort of plot of land um, in order to plant cash crops, then gets to externalize the fact that, well, most of, it, most of the people who sort of depend on him for uh, support in the feudal system are just going to starve to death, you know, because many of them did. Um, but it allows him to say, well, that's not my problem because this is my land and what happens on my land is my responsibility um, and my job is to keep people off of it. 
Uh, don't worry about what it was 10 years ago uh, because that's the past and we're a forward-looking England uh, with our industrialization that has only had good consequences. Um, anyway, so let's get into it. Uh, so, like I said, we're looking at internal borders, implied borders, national borders, even international borders like the European Union or what states are in NATO or even like what states are in the West. Um, because there was this picture that sort of went around on uh, Twitter a while ago um, called sort of the, the Great Wall. And it sort of notes that the most, the top 20 most livable cities in the world, um, you know, your various Nordics and Toronto and, you know, fucking San Francisco and whatever, all these wealthy places are contained behind what can actually be taken together as a way to keep the poor out. That there, if you imagine a big wall along the southern border of the United States, a big wall against Africa and the Middle East in the European Union, of which there, there is, whether it's a physical wall, a fence, um, militarized sea outposts. There's the wall between Israel and the rest of the Middle East. There's the wall between North and South Korea. And then there's Australia's sea wall. Um, and taken together, it's a, it is actually a way to sort of all of these states that have been imperial powers or that have grown from, uh, or that have sort of enjoyed the sponsorship of imperial powers, with the slight exception of, of, of East Asia, which we can, you know, it's a, a different thing. Um, but by, by and large, either imperial powers or their settler colonial states, after having sort of pl uh, plundered the world of most of well, everything, have, have taken all the wealth back to their, their states, and then when the global system of states sort of solidified not just in Westphalia, uh, but after uh, the Second World War, and we sort of have the we have the nowhere on earth isn't sort of covered by a an independent state or nominally independent state. Um, then the wall went up, and we sort of forgot that you know um, we forgot that 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 it was through the plunder of empire you know that even most modern welfare states exist. We forgot all of that and said okay. The distribution of resources is now set. It's done. It's all natural. It's all it's all it's all good from here and no one else can no one else can come in. Right. So we talked sort of a little bit about okay, what is what is what is what is a border? So it's not just a national border, like I said, you know, it's as long as you put up and defend a wall and you you exclude and defend your right to sort of have exclusive access to an area. Congratulations, you have a border. Um, and, and, and Jones finds that sort of borders and violence are tied together in sort of five key ways. And sort of, uh, it's important to, I think, think about not just that, well, borders are bad, uh, but also that borders are specifically, they're bad in ways that facilitate um, the power of capital by restricting anyone's ability to challenge capital. And so they, they do that sort of through, through violence. So five ways. There is uh, direct violence, which is border guards just fucking shooting people, um, which, you know, occurs in, 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 in Mexico. You know, if, you're, if, a, if an ICE agent is, finds you and you're, um, and you're with, well, it used to be within 100 miles of the border. Now it's just fucking anywhere. But if an ICE agent finds you, they will do direct violence to you for having, for either for trying to cross the border or for trying to cross the, or for having crossed the border. Direct violence. Um, 
but there also is an increased chance of death, which is that well, most of these regimes have kind of walled off, most of these states have sort of walled off the easy ways to get across their borders um, and thereby funnel people into ways that will probably kill them. Uh, and so you can remember, like, there are um, organizations that leave water out for um, uh, people crossing the southern border of the United States because the places where it's easiest to get across are also the places where you'll probably die. Um, or rather easiest to get across in terms of, well, it's least patrolled. Um, and, and, and so, you know, there are organizations that have to leave people water or else, you know, they'll you know, die. Um, or even you see that since 2005, like, what, well, it's like between 2005 and 2015 in that 10-year period, some like tens of thousands, like twenty five to 35,000 people um, or some, you know, obscene number um, died trying to make their way across the border into the European Union, um, largely because, and here's actually something interesting. It's not something that, that Jones mentions. It's something that sort of I'm aware of uh, because I, I actually have spent some time in this area where sort of two, the two worlds have rubbed up against one another and it's been quite raw in the Greek islands. Anyway, um, that, air, that airlines, uh, there's a European regulation that airlines if someone is refused entry into a country, if someone is flying in without a proper visa, then the airline is liable to fly them back. That's why, quite frequently, airlines will actually check if you have the visa to go to the country you're going to. And so, the sort of one of the border checks is kind of externalized to the air, to, to airlines, just like um, the UK uh, is now sort of trying to make its sort of border regime penetrate into the country by making banks border guards and university lecturers border guards. And even like when I was at university, if you didn't attend all of your tutorials, like the border, the, the, your, your tutor was supposed to be like, well, they're not here for the real reasons of their visa. It's now my job as a university professor to take off my university hat and put on my border guard hat and be a border guard. So, no, states love externalizing that. So they also externalize it on the airlines. And that's one of the main reasons that uh, refugees to Europe can't just fly in. Um, you know, many of them, especially the people, and we'll talk a lot about this more, uh, but many people fleeing the, uh, Syrian, the Syrian conflict are, or, or were at the time, you know, middle-class Damascus folks. Uh, these are people who could easily afford an airline ticket, but they were denied the opportunity to purchase one uh, because the airlines don't want to take the risk. And so then they are sort of forced, not even by, but not even by their own material conditions, um, but by the violence of the border regime to then undertake this very dangerous crossing uh, in a boat from you know, Turkey or Libya or wherever it is that they go. There is the threat of violence then for having crossed, whether that comes from sort of local fascists as as I saw quite a bit of when I was in the Greek islands um, in 2015, which I'll talk about a little more later. Um, or, you know, like I was saying, regimes like ICE uh, for just have, having crossed or having committed the crime of crossing, um, your entry into society is illegal. Um, but then, those are the obvious ones. But then there are some less obvious ones. There is, um, and this is actually created by a sort of mismatch between the mobility of labor and the mobility of capital, um, which is that economic well-being around the world is hurt because borders 
borders cause regulatory competition. And in a world where capital can move freely, competing regulatory environments will sort of tend to have a race to the bottom in terms of like worker protections and stuff because they want capital. Um, and so the fact is, you know, Bangladesh, as Bangladesh, is tied to um, the is tied to the, the 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 land of Bangladesh. It's tied to the estuary that it's in. It can't up sticks and you know move to Nevada and compete with Nevada for being there. Like no, it's there. Its people are there. It's got its own resources. It's got its own cities. Whatever. But like capital, capital can scout the world for the best la- labor conditions. It can leave somewhere like the U.S., for example, where wages are high and workers have quite a few rights to then go to Bangladesh where they don't. And that kind of hurts everybody except for, you know, John Walmart. Uh, And finally, we also have environmental. And I think that this is kind of the environmental damage caused by borders is manifold. It's both literal and the fact that just, you know, borders that are put up don't just... um, like the fences are, are are blocking uh rivers and migratory paths and and so on but equally again like the, it creates a it creates a sort of short termism where a bunch of sort of arbitrarily defined units we call countries are competing for um to be the most hospitable uh to capital which is then able to once again start it creates an external world for environmental issues to be externalized into right and so when the sea level when sea levels rise, you know there are countries and that will fare well with it. Like I'm relatively certain most of England will be mostly all right, and that's because it's just got relatively high above sea level, or because you know it's um, most of its cities are on hills, or it already has the infrastructure to control uh, variable sea levels from being you know an ocean going power. Whereas what the fuck are 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 desertified sub-Saharan African countries going to do? Bangladesh and the Maldives are going to be underwater. Um, the borders allow certain entities to externalize these problems. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit uh, from the book. Uh, this is actually from the um, this is from the the end of the book. So I'm, like I said, we're not doing we're not we're not we're we're we're, no, we're doing spoilers here it's a little bit long but i think it's very good it sort of sums it all up so here goes walls borders maps properties identity documents and enclosure laws are technologies of governments that are fundamentally about controlling and excluding in the past rulers and states used slavery and other coercive practices to control the movement of people within the state to ensure a stable supply of labor and troops for battle It was only under the unique parameters of the age of colonization that the poor of Europe were briefly encouraged to move in relatively large numbers to new places. So, sorry, I'll do a brief digression here. This is why anybody who fucking says the United States is a nation of immigrants is a complete fool that should be immediately disregarded. But you can probably you can probably like, you know, um, um, bamboozle them with a wallet inspector scheme because I don't think they're technically sentient. This is the difference between settler colonialism and, and sort of modern migration or the modern conception of what an immigrant is. These places were used, the, the, the sort of the, the terra nullius, uh, of course it wasn't terra nullius, it was, it was inhabited by people, but the, the point of the sort of world of not states represented by the Americas and Australia and Africa um, to the world of states in Europe was that, oh, here is a place 
we can externalize our problem of, of urban poor. Here's a place we can go and extract from, and the only people there are people we don't consider people, and so we can displace. Um, so a settler colony, a settler, a settler colony is not founded by sort of migrants or refugees or anyone seeking a bet, seeking, who's just simply seeking a better life because they are they are downtrodden. Rather, it is a, once again another act of violence and extractive domination. So you know, all that July Fourth, we're a nation of immigrants shit that people in the U.S. say can fucking do one. Anyway. Throughout the 20th century, I'm going back to reading, states have reasserted their ability to regulate the movement of the poor as more sophisticated passports and visa systems were put in place and more countries began to patrol their borders for unauthorized migration. The hardening and militarization of borders does not signal the retreat of sovereign authority. It signals the expansion of the ability of states to monitor and regulate movements in their territories and beyond. The rearticulation and expansion of sovereign authority means that it is no longer necessary to maintain the internal-external distinction between the police and the military as they maintain the boundaries of the state and private property. So I think that last line is really, really interesting because there is this sort of conflation of the state and property because the nation-state, as we imagine it now, kind of, you know, it, it obviously it was not ever thus. I mean, nothing was ever thus. Um, you know, in... in um, but it, it, it and it was, and the nation state now is sort of particularly unique because within a nation state, there really is very little. There's very little of it that isn't somehow property. Like if you think about England, with the exception of say maybe I don't know various areas of outstanding natural beauty that are sort of parkland and maybe government buildings, the rest, entire rest of it is private property. Um, and even then, sort of public property is sort of just what private property that's owned by the state and in which we all have some kind of share. Like, it's still conceptually very similar, even if the ownership model is different. It is still a bounded piece of land where certain rules apply to it. Uh, those rules just happen to be um, slightly different from, say, privately owned private property. Anyway, the English border regime, sort of, or, or any sort of modern border regime, um, in, in many ways exists to protect the sanct... It exists as the kind of grouping together of English property holders, of UK property holders, protect all of this private property in the UK from the global poor, which are going to, well, come and maybe make demands on it. Uh, so, you know, can't have that. Um, and the only reason something like the EU can exist with its sort of relaxed sort of freedom of, freedom of movement, whatever, is because more or less everyone in that area is more or less rich and more or less won't is basically can be trusted not to make any demands on that private property. Also, of course, it exists for uh, to allow European countries to engage in sort of labor arbitrage and hollow out all of the middle classes of those territorial areas because they can do because they're really what they're actually doing is is they're competing is they're allowing company countries to compete with one another. Anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's like it's like it's like com it's like competition of who can who can. Who can humiliate themselves the worst for the for the glory of uh, the, the to get this new Amazon warehouse, which is definitely not just gonna you know kill all the businesses in a in a, in a particular town and then you know render um, its its workforce into serfs who all live in tents. Anyway, I'm getting uh, I'm, I'm I'm getting distracted, but the uh, the police protect private property, the military protects the border. They more or less work together to make sure the private property within a state is more or less protected more or less all of the time. Whether that's from the poor within the state or the poor outside the state, they basically just have the same role. 
Um, so that's sort of the um, that's sort of how how to think about borders in this in this book. And I mentioned um, Westphalia earlier, which I think many listeners are probably familiar with, but some might not be. Um, it was at the at the sort of at the end of the um, of the sort of a uh, uh, Reformation and Counter Reformation, and the sort of various wars fought throughout what was then the Holy Roman Empire, which is more or less now lots of sort of Germany and Italy. There was this conflict between the sort of if you like the Lords Temporal. Um, the various aristocrats who controlled various feudal holdings. Uh, I noticed I didn't say owned, they just sort of controlled them. So there was, there was a relationship between sort of the knight of the castle or the duke or whatever and his relationships up the great chain of being to the Holy Roman Emperor and or the Pope and then the relationships down the great chain of being and there were sort of to the, 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 the feudal serfs. And, you know, while I'm certain, you know, being a serf was probably a pretty bad existence, there were still mutual obligations that ran up and down the chain. So there would be land that, this, that would just sort of be under the sway of this family and they would have their serfs on it and their serfs would be working the land for the Lord, but they would also be working it for themselves. They would also be gathering firewood from around places and hunting animals and so on and so on. And there was not necessarily a, well, this is my land, this is your land. It was just sort of land um, because that's, well, that's quite just simply how the feudal economy worked. And that's also sort of how feudal states worked. It was, there wasn't like, um, there, was, there, was, there was just the areas controlled by certain families that had sort of obligations to one another that also owed fealty to the Pope in Rome or in the Vatican City. Um, and it was sort of, it was sort of a web of not as well-defined relationships. Obviously, any scholar of that period who's listening to this is probably tearing out their earbuds because I'm, I'm glossing over so much shit, but... I'm so sorry. Uh, please write write to the Trash Future DMs uh, if you want a uh, uh, condolences, uh, maybe a sticker. We're gonna we're gonna have stickers anyway. Um, so what we get sort of as we get sort of modern modern capitalism developing out of this system is a sort of twofold change. We get and this is sort of and this comes sort of through the Peace of Westphalia in the Holy Roman Empire and the growing enclosure movement in England and Western Europe. Um, the Peace of Westphalia basically says, look, all of these Catholic, um, these Catholic duchies fighting the Protestant duchies, sort of wars of religion over sort of, you know, reasserting papal authority over, um, over states that have decided they don't want that anymore. Not states, sorry, over sort of various sort of no, sort of feudal collections that don't want sort of to obey the Pope, whatever. Um, the Peace of Westphalia said, okay, we're actually going to change things. We're going to create a sovereign entity that is able to control a given area. And they decide everything that goes on in that area. Um, they can control it. They can take censuses of it. They can do whatever. Um, and then the Pope, uh, his authority is now just spiritual. He can't actually command you to do anything. Uh, he, he, he's, he's, he's in the Vatican wearing gold slippers. He's fine. Um, and so what this creates is the Westphalian state, which is the state as we would know it today, a sort of mm, a bureaucratic legal body that administers everything in a given area. And usually in Europe, this would be concomitant with a nation. Um, and a nation, uh, as Benedict Anderson defines it in his book, Imagined Communities, is an, well, an imagined community. That is to say, you feel a kind of kinship with a person 
without ever having known them. You're not really in community with them because you can know like what, 150 people actually well through your lifetime. But just like, you know, when everyone was happy about football coming home, we had experienced this, well, temporarily, we experienced a sort of imagined community um, with others uh, throughout, uh, well, I guess just England. Um, sorry, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Um, but we experienced this imagined community, which, was, which enabled us to feel a sort of sense of solidarity. This is, in fact, why um, uh, Germans, not all Germans, but, for example, Germans, were more happy to sort of have subsidy payments flow west to east than they were to have subsidy payments flow from Germany to Greece uh, to deal with the Euro crisis. Uh, there is a sense of community, uh, just as in the UK, subsidy payments flow up, but we are terrified of them flowing out of the country. Um, there's, oh, you have to get rid of DFID, but everyone's fine with subsidy payments moving around the country because we have this sense of imagined community. Anyway, that's the nation, that's the state. Put them together, you have the nation state. At the same time, this enclosure movement I was describing earlier is also happening. And so we begin, this is sort of the, bound, the foundations of capitalism and how borders are so crucial. You put borders around private property, you put borders around a collection of private property that's sort of owned or managed by one kind of super organization that takes on defense. And then you have this idea of the nation that sort of keeps everybody bought into this defense of private property, even though they have no real material stake in it. That is to say, um, that's why you can get a sort of poor, um, a poor city dweller from, you know, fucking... I don't know, from, from, from you know, 17th century Prussia, you know, to rise up and defend Germany against their aggressors, even though really you're just defending the interests of the private property holder, well, not Germany, uh, Prussia. Uh, the, you're defending the interests of Prussian private property holders um, to maintain sort of extractive, exclusive use of their property. So this is why you can never extricate borders and nations and states private property and capitalism. It's all kind of tied up together and it's all kind of is this ideology, be, it's, it's all mixed together into this ideological soup uh, that maintains these powers. So what we kind of get that give us, um, to give us this, well, this modern condition is that we mentioned earlier that um, I mentioned in the, in the passage that I read uh, that there was a time where European states were able to use um, what we might call settler colonialism uh, to, dis to deal with their own uh, problems of, of the urban poor. Uh, that is to say, capitalism has always been very good at dealing with its internal contradictions by externalizing them. Now, there was another book I was reading I don't have with me, uh, but it's called How Will Capitalism End by Wolfgang Strick. It's also very, 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 very good. I strongly recommend it. And he was thinking, well, look, we've been, like, we've been calling time on capitalism since for fucking ever, uh, and yet it still persists. And he's like, okay, well, how, why is that? Because we know it has contradictions. We know it's not an internal system. We've had other systems before now, and we'll have other systems subsequently. Um, what will they be? And so what, what Streak sort of comes down on is like, look, Capitalism has always had a few trump cards in its hands because it is such a totalizing control of everything. Now, he doesn't go sort of Frankfurt school and say, well, yeah, the trump cards are sort of based on sort of culture and psychology and stuff. He said that he's, he's much more sort of an, of an economist. 
Uh, and he says that the trump cards have been stuff like um, privatizing public debt. So encouraging lots of people to engage in sort of private, private consumption smoothing by taking out lots and lots of loans, by making credit available very cheaply through private actors like banks. It's able to respond to or you know, massive injections like after the Great Depression into public works. And I and all this. So, you know, it's 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 able to respond to crises by sort of kicking the can down the road. Now, of course, Streak thinks that we've probably used the last Trump card and that it's probably going to collapse from now. And hey, maybe it will. Maybe it's got another Trump card up its sleeve. I think it probably doesn't. But hey, what the fuck do I know? Anyway, but I think like this was a very that this whole idea of settler colonialism was a very early Trump card where, you know, we were where we, capitalism was able to solve one of its crises, was able to sort of externalize one of its contradictions, by um, saying, okay, well, look, you know, we're, we're France, we're England, whatever. We have an enormous work, population of working poor that we can't possibly, well, we don't want to provide for particularly because, well, I, I need more gold shoes. Um, so, but also, uh, there are vast tracts of, as far as we're concerned, empty land. So why don't we just increase the available pool of resources to split among everybody so we don't have to give anyone anything? And then, you know, maybe we can also send some companies out there to wall stuff off and engage in sort of, you know, um, extraction. And so we send, we send the, the French, the, the, the English, the Italians, the Germans laterally um, sort of begin sh- they ship everyone everywhere. And... Um, what this does is this. This is a well. This is well, not a, a rational or reasonable uh, response from a moral point of view. It's a way to for a poor, for a poor underclass to um, well de poor itself. You know, it's a way. It's a way to just get resources. Well, the problem. Let's because let's see. The problem is I'm a working stiff in 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 London. I've got a life expectancy of like three. Um, most most of my kids are dying. And I'm living in a place the size of a couch, you know. I'm being, and then I'm told, "Oh, hey, I can stop being that. Uh, I can go just get a farm, like in that movie, The Vivitch, where the, a goat will kill me. But I can go. I can get a free farm uh, somewhere else. Great. My issue, uh, I, I have because I am poor. I have needed to move. The state has facilitated me moving. There was this huge single minute through settler colonialism of movement." But then the problem is, fast forward to now, and there are no terra nulliuses left, you know, because the modern day equivalent of the poor working stiff in London, who sort of is on the one hand the backbone of the economy, but on the other hand is its most intensely exploited subject. Um, uh, That person doesn't really live in London anymore. That person lives... In Manila, that person you know may live in Brazzaville. That person lives in Dhaka. In fact, you know we we come back to Bangladesh again and again because it's where wages are are low, and a lot of garment manufacturing takes place. But I digress. So, you know, we then ask ourselves if the solution to extreme poverty in sort of the West, in the industrial, newly industrialized West, in fucking um, the the sort of 15th to 19th centuries was just to go and use the resources of another place to not be extremely poor. Um, what's the solution now? 
where the fuck is the, you know, where the fuck's the guy in, in, in Bangladesh who's working 20 hours a day as a garment manufacturer for, you know, 75 cents? Where the fuck's he going to go? The moon? Probably not. So there is sort of this fudge, this, this, this thing that capital was able to do to sustain its own existence has, well, it's, it's, it's used that trump card. It's gone. You know, there is nowhere left for the global hyper-exploited to go to kind of kick the can of, of, of the internal contradiction of their situation down the road. Because the problem is, to sustain levels of consumption in the West as they are, we need that hyper-exploitation. There is no, you know, eight-pound shirt, eight-pound T-shirt, plus a high level of corporate profits for the um, H&M group or Walmart or whatever. Um, there isn't that without hyper-exploitation of labor in Bangladesh. So if you like, we've got this impossible trinity of um, cheap consumer goods, uh, profitable companies, and um, uh, uh, basic human rights for people uh, who aren't here. And like I said, borders allow us to externalize that problem. We don't have to... like Cheap consumer goods in the Industrial Revolution along with profitable manufacturing concerns, required um, the, the hyper-exploitation of local labor. You know, they required the hyper-exploitation of people who were right there and who would then agitate for change because of the inherent contradiction of the system they were in. But Bangladeshi workers can't agitate for change in English wage policy because, well, A, they can't. B, it wouldn't affect them even if they could. So they can agitate for change to Bangladeshi wage policy. And by and large, they haven't really been as able to for you know, a whole wide variety of reasons. And even if they could, even if they did, which I guess they did after Rana Plaza collapsed, which I'll get into a bit later, um, then the Walmarts of the world would just go elsewhere. They would find another place to race to the bottom or... They would say, "Okay, we're actually done um, overseas. Um, we're done overseas manufacturing entirely. We've realized we can actually re-onshore everything, but automate it." Thank you, Bangladeshi workers, for sacrificing your um, bodies, your lives, your your your, your fingers, whatever, uh, to sort of allow us to keep making enough profit to automate everything. Uh, checks in the mail, you know. That's that's all they're really. That's all they can really. Well, obviously, checks not in the mail. Nothing's ever in the mail from them, um, and that. Ex- but that that totally externalizes that contradiction because what can they do? Well, I'll tell you what they can do, and this is what they do do, is they can be like, well, we can't go to where there's nobody, but we can go to where there are higher wages as mandated by law. We can go. We can. It's almost. And, and this sort of, if you like, I'm not going to say migration crisis, because as we talked about on our recent episode with Zoe Gardner, there is no migration crisis. It's just, you know, worded that way. But as part, part of the global wave of migration that sort of has always been occurring, but parts driving this one is the fact that this is the contradiction coming home. Um, this is, we wanted cheap shirts and profitable companies, and we didn't want to see the problem. Um, and so the problem was never going to go away. The problem now is that people are saying, well, we're going to come in to Europe, which again, they should. Um, 
because that's where there is money. That's where there are rights. That's where, you know, if I'm working in a garment factory, you know, it's not going to be great, but I'm not going to be constantly at risk of dying, whether from starvation or a collapsing uh, building. And this is why the distinction between, you know, mere migrants and refugees is such a politically useful and pernicious one. Because the global border regime has its exceptions. But its exceptions were built specifically in the wake of World War II. And again, I won't go into this too much because you can just listen to our, our episode with Zoe about it. Um, but to distinguish between someone who would die because they're going to starve to death because their job doesn't pay them and they have to work in like a, you know, a, a shoebox teetering on top of a high tower um, and someone who's going to die because they're going to be shot by a political enemy. Like, like it's like we said in the episode, you're just as dead either way. So why are we sort of, you know, saying, well, no, you should respect the border regime and just make the best of it as you can in Bangladesh. Fuck you. Why? Right? Like we, we like the West has benefited off of the creation of the conditions that has made it basically unlivable to be in, you know, so many of the, of the so much of the developing world, which is also a euphemism. It's developing because we stopped it from developing. Anyway. Um, so we're saying, well, that's, a, that's an illegitimate migrant because they're just looking for a better life. Again, sorry, there's a police nearby. Um, yeah, again, go fuck yourself. You know, this is someone who's going to be as dead. And they're going to be as dead because of us, not because of a more localized conflict. Um, so that's why that's sort of such a pernicious idea and should be resisted at every turn. Because um, that's the other, other thing you know, that sort of I, I, I keep thinking of. Uh, because this is, this is sort of, I guess, something I saw. Because uh, I, I, I mentioned a little earlier, I, uh, I sort of had some up-close experience of this. So in 2015, um, I had finished my final degree of university. Uh, I had just finished a writing project. I was starting a new job uh, the following in early 2016, um, I didn't have much to do, and one of my friends, uh, who shall remain nameless, um, was a sort of fledgling reporter, uh, decided that he wanted to do uh, a story. And so we did, we went to the pub, and we were like, okay, I, 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 I should add, I was a uh, photographer, I did, but I mostly just, you know, fucking went around Europe taking pictures of DJs, uh, but I was, you know, I was bored. Um, so we went to the pub, and we were like, all right, What's the cheapest place where we can go where something newsworthy is happening? And we sort of narrowed it down to Donetsk in eastern Ukraine uh, or uh, Kos in the Greek islands. So we saw that there was a Thompson flight, so a package holiday flight, going to Kos basically the next day. It was fucking cheap as shit, uh, way cheaper than Donetsk, which would have been very expensive. Um, and so we were like, okay, fuck it, let's do it. So we booked an Airbnb. Uh, we grabbed our stuff, uh, we sort of got up early the next day, and we flew out. Uh, he spoke Arabic and Farsi, and I, could, I had a couple of words, I can open up a conversation, whatever, and we were basically just going to go in bed and see what the story was. You know, we'd gotten a tip that there was a hotel uh, called the Captain Elias that was um, abandoned uh, by, by its... Um, uh, owners and was just owned by you know one of the Greek banks that was doing so well at the time, and we were like when we heard I can't remember how uh, that 
the bank was going to send in, you know, goons of the hired variety uh, to go clear out the refugees who'd been encamped there because apparently they posed um, a risk on their insurance. So we're like, okay, well, let's, I guess let's go bear witness to that um, and see what comes of it. So we were there for a little while um, in this in this town, in this seaside town. Uh, it was, you know, a relatively harrowing uh, experience um, because, I don't know, nothing, it doesn't, nothing really prepares you for that, uh, for seeing that. I mean, it becomes difficult to continue feeling like a, uh, like a journalist in the face of something that is so inhuman as understanding that this town is now a sort of camp of people whose lives had become impossible um, and who had decided that the best thing to do whether for themselves or their families was, you know, to roll the dice, come here. We found lots of guys who were saying, look, who were talking about their plans. They were like, look, if I say I'm gay, I won't be able to go back to Iran. If I get a tattoo of a cross, I'll, if I go back, a lot of them were from Iran, actually. Um, some were Afghan refugees living in Iran who then came over. A lot were West African. Um, that's, that's beside the point. You know, if I get a tattoo of a cross, then, you know, I'll be at risk of dying in my, my home country of Iran. And then, you know, then I won't be able to be, they can't deport me. Um, and, you know, these are people who were basically just faced with the prospect of, well, my life's going to suck and be short. And the global border regime says, no, you have to be okay with that um, because reasons. You have to be okay with that so that, you know, fucking the ghouls and Tory shires, you know, don't vote out their blood-sucking MPs. I mean, if you want to know why I'm sort of so mad all the time, I mean, I haven't really stopped being mad since I got back from coast. Um, especially because a lot of the... When I was there, um, a lot of the sort of Syrian families had sort of already come and gone, right? These are the easy migrants to process. These are the obvious refugees. You know, regardless of whatever else, this is... They're the ones with the easy cases. They're the ones where it's even easy to sell them politically. When we were there, it was basically just single men. Uh, and the air of despair was pretty palpable. Um, the most difficult, I mean, I don't want to say difficult, it sounds weird. There was, you know, the most, I guess, affecting, and something I still haven't really gotten over, was I met this guy from Iran. Um, I won't say his name um but uh he he came over because you know he was highly educated he spoke perfect english i'm not saying that gives him more of a right to be here that's a dumb fucking lib take this is slightly more personal i guess um and his parents were on the wrong side of the revolution and you know that's a big th uh, grandparents rather uh, and that's a big thing in determining sort of what position you get so he could either look forward to a life as, you know, limited to no opportunity, or he could, you know, go somewhere where 
you'd have more of a chance. Um, and I, I remember so keenly um, that I, we'd, we'd met this, these German girls who were just sort of coordinating logistics of just getting food to the camp all the time. Uh, but I, I really, I couldn't deal with, um, I couldn't deal with the idea that I was standing on one side of an object of an objective journalism wall, and there was this other guy who I felt such a sort of close connection with. That I, I sort of, it was sort of as like a like a thing on the edge of my mind that I felt like when I returned to London, I sort of expected to just be able to text him and have him be at the pub because it just felt like a natural friend and that there was this border that was keeping that from being a thing. And I remember that I was talking to these these German girls running this NGO and I they were like, hey, can you go tell people we're serving food? But when I was talking to him, I I I we were just I would just talk about I just wanted to fucking hang out. Um and I, I went out there and I was like, hey, they're serving food. I don't know if you care, if you feel like it. Uh, and, you know, he, he said, well, of, of course, man, I'm starving. Um, and it was the border that created that, that relationship. It was the border that, um, that made that hierarchy that I was so angry about. And I was very struck by it. Um, it was very upsetting. So I gave him my email address, and uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't hear from him uh, after that, which is, I guess, not ideal. Yeah, I think about that all the time. Anyway, yeah, borders. Borders hurt everybody. Um, in a jarring shift in tone, um, I kind of want to, sorry, a jarring shift in tone, uh, I kind of want to go back to how borders hurt everybody, not just, you know, personally, uh, but economically also, um, where uh, uh, Jones is then writing about how, and I quote, uh, the overt coercion of state-sanctioned slavery is largely in the past, but the poor are still contained in developing countries and forced by lack of other options to work for very low wages in order to make products to benefit the very wealthy. Now, this is something I've sort of gone through, but we can then ask, well, now what does that do to the working class in the countries that, if you like, benefit from the global border regime? Because I'll, I'll give you a hint. Um, it's, it's nothing good. Because what borders prevent the movement of is people. What they don't prevent the movement of, especially um, in this world of uh, uh, sort of free trade, um, the WTO, NAFTA, and the European Union, is they do not prevent the movement of capital. Uh, capital can go anywhere. And so if, if you are Roosevelt and you're creating the New Deal, right? If you're creating this body of law that prevents excess speculation by business, that stimulates sort of, that includes minimum wages, that includes the banning of child labor, that basically just makes it more okay to be a worker. 
what you're doing is you're making it more okay to be a worker only in the United States. And you need to be basically isolationist for that to work. Um, because cap and also you need to be in a situation where, well, capital, when you say capital, you mean a factory that you can't just move. But now, with sort of especially after the 70s, with financialized capital uh, that can sort of move freely, um, you're, un you're able to sort of engage in arbitrage. You're able to make the working class of one country more or less obsolete. You're able to hollow it out, as happened in Britain in the 1980s, as, hap as has been happening in the US for the last sort of 30 years. All of these working people who managed to win themselves um, protections, those protections were ephemeral because then the liberalization of capital meant that capital could just up sticks and fuck off. So if you win a minimum wage law, that's only effective in as much as you can make sure that the money to pay you with a wage still stays fucking there. Um, you know, we say in terms of capital flight, right? Like, yeah, we're gonna institute, we're going, we're gonna make this a better place to be a worker. Um, good luck taking your house and car with you. And in many ways, I think that's, there is something to that, right? Where it's just, you have to do the job all the way, you know? So if you raise minimum wages, say, without expropriating the rich, that gives the rich enough sort of power to strike back and hire other people. And so the working class of the United States isn't really the working class of the United States. The people who are producing the products with the relationship to capital, where they're working at a factory at a low enough wage to produce things they can't afford, creating one of the internal contradictions of capitalism and causing the rate of profit to fall over time. That working class just isn't in the United States. It's in China, it's in Bangladesh, it's elsewhere. Um, and so the working class in the United States is then made obsolete. And so either it has to ex continue existing on sort of residualized and residualizing benefits where, oh, we're going to make work pay. It's like, well, we did make work pay. It's just we made it pay way less elsewhere. Um, and we're able to do that because we have these hard borders, more or less keeping people in prisons. Um, so we have the hard borders within the U.S., for example, keeping people from just going in and taking stuff from the rich. And then we have the hard borders between the U.S. and Mexico, preventing Mexican workers from, from coming and, you know, enjoying the fruits of the, their own fucking labor. Um, so uh, Jones concentrates on... Um, on Bangladesh and the ways in which sort of regulatory arbitrage has caused problems there. Regulatory arbitrage is what, just what happens when you know a company sees there are two, it can make a profit by relocating itself from one country to another. So in 2013, when Rana Plaza, a sort of large uh, textile manufacturing complex with lots of like little factories in it that subcontracts to the contractors who they're then contracted to make, I don't know, H&M's next shirt or whoever the fuck, I don't know if who they make shit for. Um, in 2013, when the Rana Plaza collapsed, uh, the minimum wage in Bangladesh was $39 per month, one of the lowest in the world. If a worker worked a standard eight-hour shift five days a week, that wage would be 24 cents per hour, although many workers work more hours than that per month because they are routinely given productivity targets that are impossible to meet. In order to finish the task, they'd have to stay awake late or work on holidays or days off. If they miss their targets, they're not paid or fired. And because factory owners want to maximize profits, they cut corners on safety issues, ventilation, sanitation, they don't pay overtime, they don't offer worker assistance, they don't offer fucking vacation. They're basically just slaves, just with a small amount of payment. Um, and so, 
why, if you're a company and you want to make the most possible money, why the fuck wouldn't you go over there? You can say, oh, well, you know, consumers in the West will don't, won't stand for it. And it's like, well, no, they, they will. They have. You know, they'll continue to. Um, and, you know, again, it's like Jones says, you, know, you can't focus on the bad apples of the global labor system. Just like you can't focus on the human traffickers that are bringing people over the borders. Because just like borders externalize problems physically... Um, borders are also a way, because we like to imagine that they're natural and they're sort of exogenous to the system, to exogenize the cruelty uh, of the modern capitalist system. You know, we're able to say, well, um, that's just individual companies taking advantage of, of Bangladeshi labor laws. Well, it's like, well, but the system is created, the system not just of, of hyper-exploitation by capital, but the system of borders creating prisons in which people must live creates the conditions where they're incentivized to do that. I mean, obviously we should shame them for you know, being horrible, but you have to understand that you know, if, even if they close, another one's just going to take their place. You, know, that it's, it's, you can never look at just the actors. You must look at the system, and you cannot look at the global capitalist system without also looking at the borders that it depends on to constrain labor and prevent a global labor movement from coming up and overthrowing it. In any case, um, and so what what we say, you know, is yeah, this this is what Jones says. He says the economy has been hampered by artificial barriers, the political borders that contain labor and regulators, but not capital. <sighs> and yeah, like I said in the in the beginning, is I mean his his his, his solution is basically good, but you know it's just institute global communism, which I'm all for. Uh, but I don't know how we get there. Oh, fuck, you know what? At the beginning, I was going to you know, give my, my simile that I always use when, I, when, I, when someone gives sort of an overly broad solution to a very specific problem. Um, just imagine that you're... <laughs> this, is, this is what I used to say when people used to give me dating advice and be like, just be confident. I'd be like, well... Um, I'd say, imagine if you have been dropped into um, Shanghai. Right, you're in Shanghai. Welcome to Shanghai. It's really fun. I, I used to, I spent a lot of time there. It's really fun. But you're in Shanghai, uh, and you need to ask yourself, to ask directions uh, to the airport because you don't live in Shanghai. You've just been dropped here, and you say, "Okay, shit. All right, I need to get to the airport, but I don't speak Chinese. What do I do?" And you know, the advice that you get uh, through a magical, uh, maybe a, maybe a plane flies by, dragging a banner behind it. He says, you should just speak Chinese. And it's like, I mean, yeah. But there are a whole host of more immediate problems to solve in order to get to that state of affairs, right? Like, that state of affairs kind of just describes what the solution looks like. Because to be honest, I know I've been ending sort of commie book clubs with a sort of note of despair recently. In fact, if anyone has a book um, they want to recommend to me, not for next month, um, where I already have the book chosen, but maybe for the month after, um, maybe that won't make me really sad. Uh, you know, do send it up. Anyway, so I don't know really what to do about it, of course, other than, you know, institute global revolutionary communism, which sounds pretty good. Um, anyway, I strongly recommend reading this book. Uh, it is a very penetrating look at 
the ways in which this invented construct of the border, whether internally or externally, only exists to protect the privilege of a very small number of people um, at the expense of everyone else. And by believing in it and by believing in things around it like the nation or by believing it's natural and, oh, the traffickers' fault for, for hurting people is because they brought them over the border. It's like, well, there wouldn't fucking be traffickers if there wasn't a border to bring them across and there wasn't critical, crucial, insane, historically unjust levels of inequality between states. Now, fucking would there, you know? Anyway, this book is a great exploration of all this shit. In fact, it's such a great exploration that it can get depressing at times. Um, I strongly recommend you read it. Anyway... I also strongly recommend you check out Ginseng on Spotify, who provides our theme song, Here We Go. I strongly recommend you commodify your descent with a t-shirt. And, you know, hey, you know, maybe uh, you can break down the border between yourself and great flavor with some Vremi cookware. We're going to do an episode, I think, a little more on Vremi uh, in the future. Um, actually, Nate, cut that out. Cut that out. I don't want to tell them that we're going to talk more about Remy. I want it to be a, a, a discontinuous surprise. Anyway, that's been me. Um, thank you very much for listening to, to all the dumb shit we produce, uh, including uh, the Comedy Book Club, which has, for some reason, very swiftly become uh, one of my favorite things to do. Uh, do you know that it's possible to monologue for you know an hour plus about a given topic if you get pissed off enough? I didn't know that, but it is. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening. Um, buy this book. Uh, tell your friends about the show, I guess. Uh, this is great. I rarely have enough time at the end of shows, of, of episodes, you know, to actually concentrate on a subject because, uh, you know, usually one of the dinguses I record with has, you know, gone off on some, you know, riff about like, you know, what if, you know, what if the caliphate of Tower Hamlets invaded Islington or, or some such thing. Um, but, you know, do... Do, do, do tell your friends about it, because that's re- literally the only way we grow. I mean, we just started this because, you know, we bought a mixer and we're joking around with it, and we basically have no backing. Um, except, of course, by uh, cookware companies and, and, and T-shirts. Um, so, yeah, do that. So thanks to my co-hosts for not being here, distracting me with any nonsense. Thanks to Nate for your heroic efforts at producing all of my nonsense. And um, thanks to you, uh, thanks to thanks to all the hustlers and thanks to you, the customer. Uh, I've been Riley. This has been Comedy Book Club. This has been Trash Future. You're all beautiful. I love all of you. Mwah. Have a lovely evening.